the world is turning upside down all around us. Things are not going the right direction in our culture. In every corner of society, we see people of influence that are calling things that are right, wrong, and things that are wrong, right. We see people calling things that are good, evil, and things that are evil, good. It's like everything's gone topsy-turvy. And it is happening quickly. At a breathtaking and alarming pace. So the question is this. Are we just going to gather together week after week and get mad about it? Just talk about how bad things are? Or are we actually going to be change agents? The bigger question is this. Can Jesus make a difference in a culture? Can Jesus make a difference in a society? And if the answer to that question is yes, our response should be, we want to be instruments in your hands to see that change happen. I want us to think about that this morning. As we look in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, I want us to talk together about the difference that Jesus makes in society. Colossians chapter 3. In this passage, we're going to see some principles, a a roadmap, if you will, to help us to understand how things change, how God uses us to change things, how we can be change agents. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 22, but we're going to read down through Verse 1 of chapter 4, Colossians 3, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. I want to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor and reverence for the Word of God. I just preached the last 8 o'clock service, for a while at least. And so, uh, next time I'm with you at the 9.30 service, I'm going to have a lot of energy. Just get ready, all right? Just get ready. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. The Bible says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we ask you by your Spirit to draw near to us, to help us to understand how this passage applies to our lives and how it ought to affect your people today. Lord, help us to understand how we can be change agents. Help us to understand how we can impact a decaying culture with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Have your way in our midst. 
we, we bless your name today. There is none like you. And we praise you and stand in awe of your grace and your mercy and your love and your power and your strength and your holiness and your sovereignty. And we desire that you would work in such a way that when we leave this building today, we know we have met with God. So Lord, I ask you to establish my steps in your word. And we ask and we pray all of this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we've journeyed through the book of Colossians, we've seen an interesting outline form. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the first century city of Colossae. And the first part of the letter, roughly chapters 1 and 2, Paul reminds the believers of Colossae of the greatness of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done to redeem them. And he reminds them of what it means to be saved, to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And and there's a shift in chapter 3 where Paul begins to talk about different areas of our lives that Jesus begins to affect when we know him as Lord and Savior. The beginning of chapter 3 says, now you've been united with him, you have a relationship with him, and now that you have that relationship with him, he's going to begin to impact different areas of your life. We've been walking through those different areas. And I don't know about you, but the Lord's been stepping all over my toes. We've been talking about the difference that Jesus makes in the area of purity, and we've talked about the difference that Jesus makes in relationships. We've talked about the difference that Jesus makes... Uh, in our marriages. We've talked about the difference that Jesus makes in our family. This morning I want to talk about the difference that Jesus makes in society. A very interesting passage that I want us to discuss and look at and break down and dig into and also sort of step back and look at it from a big picture perspective. I believe this passage answers this question. How can we be change agents? How can we be change agents? We don't like the way things are going around us, the moral decline, the moral decay happening all around us in our nation, the the bombardment we feel as believers in Christ. We don't like that, so how can we change things? How can we be used by God to to see things go in a different direction? I'm going to give you two principles that help us answer that question. Number one, we need to understand that Jesus transforms society one heart at a time. Jesus transforms society one heart at a time. Now look what the Bible says there in verse 22. Bond servants, or literally uh, slaves, obey in everything. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, masters treat your bond servants justly and fairly. Paul here is addressing slaves and slave masters. And the first thing we need to say about slavery, because it's clearly what Paul's referring to here, is that slavery was and is an evil, man-made, life-destroying institution. Slavery was and is an evil, man-made, life-destroying institution. Now notice I said slavery was and is. I said is because by some estimates there are still 30 million people that are living in slavery in our world today. Different forms of trafficking, different things happening in our world, evil perverse things, and it's still happening in our world today. So it was and it is an evil man-made. Slavery has been conceived in the hearts of, of sinful humans, and it destroys 
lives. And I was thinking about slavery this past week, and I thought about the verse that says in 1 Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And, and slavery is an institution, an economic institution built because of the love of money. It's when people in power want to use others as labor to get wealthy or to get rich. And that is evil. That is sinful. And make no mistake about it, the Bible speaks of the sinfulness of slavery. As a matter of fact, turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want to show you this. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look at what it says in verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Paul, writing here, says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And he's going to give us a list of those who are ungodly, obedient, profane sinners. Look at the list. He says there, For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, Men who practice homosexuality. And notice the next word. Enslavers. This word speaks of those who would take someone else captive and use them for forced labor. Enslavers. Liars. Perjurers. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So clearly in this list of evil, in this list of sins, we see that enslavers are are part of that list. The Bible sees slavery as an evil, man-made, life-destroying institution. And here's the situation of the first century in the Roman Empire. By some estimates, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 60 million. About half of the, the total population. That's what the Roman Empire consisted of. These slaves constituted the workforce. And they included not only domestic servants and manual laborers, but educated people as well, like doctors, teachers, and administrators. Slaves could be inherited or purchased or acquired in settlement of a bad debt. And prisoners of war, and there were a lot of those in the Roman Empire, prisoners of war commonly became slaves. Slavery in the first century in the Roman Empire was a way of life, an unquestioned way of life. It was universally accepted in the Roman Empire. So the question is, you have this movement called Christianity in the first century. And these Christians know that slavery is evil. How in the world are these Christians going to address the evil institution of slavery? Or let me ask it like this. How could Christians change things? Warren Wiersbe speaks of this dilemma in his commentary where he writes... Why didn't the church of that day openly oppose slavery and seek to destroy it? Here's his answer. For one thing, the church was a minority group, listen, that had no political power to change an institution that was built into the social order. Let me say it again. The church was a minority group that had no political power to change an institution that was built into the social order. So Paul could have written a letter to Nero. Nero, I demand that you stop this evil institution called slavery. And Nero would have laughed and had his head cut off. They had no political power. How were Christians going to change things when it came to something like slavery? 
And as I read that sentence by Wearsby, the church is a, was a minority group that had no political power to change the institution that was building the social order. I, I, found myself, I found myself saying, you know what? The church in today's world is, is finding itself ha- to having, having more in common with the first century church. Because just like the church of the first century, we find ourselves as Christians in America as having less and less political power. Have you noticed that? We don't have political power anymore in our culture, in our country. Things don't change just because we think they should. So, but I don't believe that. If you don't believe that, why is abortion still happening? We're ardently pro-life. We believe abortion is the taking of a human life. We believe it's, it's sinful and evil, and, and we believe that it should be eradicated, and we, we say it loudly, and we say it often, and we vote for we, who we think we should vote for, but it's still happening, right? Because we don't have political power. You need to understand that Christians are rapidly becoming a minority in our nation. And so we're going to find ourselves, listen, having more and more in common with the first century church. I've been reading through the Psalms in my quiet time. And, you know, a lot of the Psalms are written by David. And they're written in the context of, of trouble. A lot of David's psalms are written when he's surrounded by enemies. And he's saying things like, Lord, you're my refuge, you're my strength. When I'm surrounded by enemies, you're the one I run to, you're the one that will defend me. And some of these great psalms that we love to quote are all written in the context of, of being surrounded by enemies. And just to be real honest with you, as I've read through the psalms through the years, I had a hard time connecting with that. I, I've never had a lot of enemies. Have you? I mean, people that are hunting me down... People that want to destroy my life. David had it all the time. Read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. He was constantly being hunted down by folks that wanted to destroy him. But when I read those psalms, they were good psalms, the familiar psalms, but I didn't find a lot in common with David. I mean, even Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. We love that psalm. Remember what he said? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That was written in the context of being surrounded by trouble. But I want you to understand, if things continue in the direction they're going in our nation, we're going to find a lot in common with David. We're going to be surrounded by people that want to marginalize us and ridicule us and silence us and destroy any influence that we have. And I want you to know that's happening right now and it's happening quickly. Let me tell you what's happening in our nation right now. Battle lines are being drawn. Targets are being placed on Christians that are having any influence in, in, the, in, in the public realm. And, and anyone that has anything to say from God's word is being shouted down and ridiculed. And we don't have the political power to stop it. I, I want you to know that shows of force are not going to change our nation. If we try to show our force and we boycott and do all this stuff, people are just going to laugh at us. They'll say, boycott, we've got enough people to buy our stuff. We don't need you to buy our stuff. Wait, that's sobering news. But that's the reality of where we live. And so we find ourselves having much in common with the first century. Listen, 
a minority group, as Wearsby says, with no political power to change an institution that was built into the social order. So he goes on to say, Paul was careful to instruct Christian slaves to secure the freedom if they could, 1 Corinthians 7.21, but he did not advocate rebellion or the overflow of the existing order. If he would have, people would have just laughed at him. And so here's the deal. How were Christians going to address the evils of slavery? How could they change things? Well, look there in your notes. Christianity undermined slavery. This is where it gets real good. Christianity undermined slavery. The principles of Christianity eroded the foundations that slavery was built upon. You see, when when people became followers of Christ, some things changed. Now, I want you to see three things that Christianity gave folks when they began to follow Christ. Number one, Christianity gave people a new motive. A new motive. Look what it says back in Colossians 3. Verse 17, Colossians 3, verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when someone became a follower of Christ, their their motive for living changed. Now, everything that you do should be done in the name of, for the glory of, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever you find yourself, whatever segment of society you find yourself in, whatever you're doing, do it for the glory, for the name of Jesus Christ. A brand new motivation for living. And that's what he told slaves. Look what he says there in verse 23. He says, whatever you do, same phrase, work hardly as for the Lord. Not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. In other words, everything is to be done in the name of Jesus Christ. Even even slave owners. Look what it says there in verse 1 of chapter 4. Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing you have a master in heaven. He's saying now that you're a Christ follower, you have a Lord, you have a master that you're living for. Things are different now. You have a new motivation for doing what you do. And Christianity gave people this brand new motivation. But it also gave them a new perspective. And this is powerful. Look what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 11. Paul says, here, in the body of Christ, here, there's not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. You know what Paul's saying there? He's saying, at the foot of the cross, we're all equals. There's no longer this barrier of division between Jews and Gentiles. There's no longer this barrier of division between barbarians and Scythians. There's no longer this, this, this barrier between slaves and slave owners. Now, we are united in that Christ is in all. He lives in all of us. The ground at the foot of the cross is level ground. We're all equals in the eyes of Jesus Christ, right? And Paul, Paul gave them this new perspective. Christianity gave them this new perspective on how to view other people. And this was happening in major ways in the church in Colossae. Let me show you how we know this. Turn to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. The Bible says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. 
I've sent him to, to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So he sent Tychicus as the, the messenger with this letter to bring to the church in Colossae. But look who was with him in the next verse. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Now here's the question. Who in the world is Onesimus? Well, we're not left to wonder because there's a book about him. The book is titled Philemon. It's a one-chapter book in the New Testament. It's very short, but it's powerful. Let me give you a little bit of background about Philemon. Philemon was a member of the church of Colossae, probably wealthy, and the church actually met in his home. And Philemon had slaves. And one of his slaves was named Onesimus. And Onesimus escaped and fled Philemon. And through the providence of God, Onesimus found his way to Rome. Well, guess who was in Rome in prison? Paul. And somehow, Paul met Onesimus. And Paul led this slave, Onesimus, to the Lord. He, he led him to faith in Christ. And then Paul sent him back to Colossae. He knew about the church in Colossae. He knew about Philemon. He sent him back and he sent a letter to Philemon, written about the same time as this letter, to tell Philemon how he ought to view Onesimus now that he was a believer and Onesimus was a believer. And it's striking. Look what he says. Turn to Philemon with me very quickly. It's right before Hebrews. It's just one chapter so you can easily miss it. Look in Philemon verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, For this perhaps is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you, Philemon, for a while that you might have him back forever. He's saying, now that you know Christ, Philemon, and now that Onesimus knows Christ, you have a relationship that will last forever into eternity. So maybe that's why he left, so he could meet Christ, and you could have this relationship with him. Look what he says. Verse 16. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, look, as a beloved brother. Paul's saying, when Onesimus fled from your household, Philemon, he was a slave, but now he's coming back, and he is a brother in Christ. This brand new perspective. Can can you imagine how that began to change things? And, And even look in verse 21. Paul writes, confident of your obedience that you'll treat Onesimus well, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Now, some scholars believe when Paul says, You'll do even more than I say. They surmise that Paul's saying there, I know you're going to set him free or pay him for his, for his labor. You're going you're to release him from his slavery. We don't know that for sure, but that's one of the views of what he means by you will do even more. And Paul's doing it in a non-threatening, non-authoritative way, but he's saying to him, appealing to him as a brother in Christ, now that Onesimus knows Jesus, he's a brother. Treat him like a brother, not as a slave. And so this new perspective said this, in the body of Christ, slaves and free people are equals. Slaves and free people are equals. Like what D.E. Garland writes, the gospel in which there is no Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female, recognizes each individual as a full person and is concerned to protect each person's rights, not to enforce his or her subordination. 
Wives are to be treated with love, children with understanding, and slaves as human beings, deserving of justice in a time when slaves were not legally regarded as human. These commands also address wives, children, and slaves as responsible, moral beings, full members of the body of Christ. And so in writing this letter to the church at Colossae, Paul is giving these believers a brand new perspective on how to view each other. Even when it came to slaves and slave owners. You see, the Romans looked at slaves as property. Christianity looked at slaves as people. The Romans looked at slaves as subhuman. Christianity looked at slaves as equals. The Romans looked at slaves as tools. Christianity looked at slaves as family. And eventually, that new perspective, that new way of viewing one another, began to change things. So Christianity gave these folks in Colossae a new a new motive for living, the glory of Christ, a new perspective. We're all equals at the foot of the cross. But third, it gave them a new vision. Look what it says over in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I just want to remind you what Paul said here because it's powerful. Colossians chapter 1 verse 28 Paul writes, Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone. I want you to say everyone. Everyone. And teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Notice he uses the, the word everyone three times. Everyone, everyone, everyone. In other words, Paul's saying the gospel is for everyone. Jew, Gentile. Men, women. Slaves. Slave owners, the gospel's for everyone. Our goal is to lead everyone to Christ and teach them the commands of Christ so they can grow in maturity in Christ. That was the vision of the New Testament church. Their vision was to see every life, regardless of social status, to see every life transformed by Jesus. That was the vision of the first century, and that is our vision today. To see every life transformed by Christ. You see, in the first century, Christians had no political voice. But they had a powerful vision. And, and even though we are having less and less of a political voice in our culture, guess what? We've got a powerful vision. Amen? We've got the, the Bible, the gospel, the Spirit of God indwelling us, and we are called to go out into our culture and take the gospel to everyone. Doesn't matter what their social status is, doesn't matter what their skin color is, doesn't matter what their gender is, everyone, everyone is to be transformed by Christ. We need to tell them about Christ, a new vision. And this church in Colossae had that vision. And the early first century church had that vision. So while Paul didn't write a letter to Nero demanding the end of slavery, Christianity instituted some principles that undermined slavery. That eroded the very foundation slavery was built upon. And we know it worked. You know how we know it worked? Slavery came to an end. And the Roman Empire crumbled. And I believe that all history is God's history. And I believe that it can all be traced back 
to Christianity spreading across the Roman Empire. When you had slaves and slave owners getting saved and beginning to treat each other like brothers and sisters in Christ. Wow! That's what happened. Christianity undermined slavery. And we see Christianity affecting other times in history in the same way. Scholars believe that the preaching of John Wesley and, and George Whitfield resulted in the abolition of slavery in, in England. And it, and it led to the abolition of child labor. Their preaching, the gospel, impacting that society led to the elevation of women and, and care for the needy. A Lutheran minister was quoted talking about the Hindu caste system. If you don't know much about the Hindu caste system, it takes place in India. You can read about it online. It's a, it's a system that is ingrained in the culture where people are born into a certain caste or level of society and there's nothing they can do to change it. If you're in one of the lower castes, then you are despised and isolated and oppressed and given the, the worst kinds of labor, even enslaved. Some are even called the untouchables. You don't even touch them. And there's this, this embedded caste system in India which is evil. It, it destroys lives. It's, it's man-made, and it's backed up by the Hindu religion at all levels. And so how do you change something like the Hindu caste system? There are political voices in India that say, we should do away with it, but guess what? It's still happening. It's a little more undercover now, but it's still happening. So how do you change things like the Hindu caste system? Very similar to something like slavery. This Lutheran minister said this. He is confident that becoming Christian and accepting the Bible as the only scripture will destroy the religious sanctions that reinforce the Hindu caste system and that with religious sanctions gone, the sense of separateness and class distinction will gradually disappear. In other words, he's saying, as the gospel spreads, as people are saved and build their lives upon the word of God, the caste system cannot stand because it is, it is totally incongruent with the Bible. It's in the same way that Christianity undermined slavery in the first century. Christianity will undermine the caste system in India. I believe that with all my heart. So here's the principle I want you to, to walk away with. Listen to me. When we have influence and a voice, we speak out. Don't hear me saying that we should not speak out against the evils in society. We should. We should speak with courage and compassion and clarity, we should let people know the truth of the Word of God. We should let people know what's right and what's wrong. We should speak with conviction to our culture. Don't hear me saying we shouldn't do that. We should always do that. But when we are outnumbered and no one cares what we have to say, but we desire to see sweeping change in our society, here's how we change things. Listen. One heart at a time. That's how Jesus changed the Roman Empire. One heart at a time. Changing Philemon's heart. And the heart of Onesimus. And on and on and on. That's how things change. Slavery could not stand as Christianity swept the empire. It could not stand. The evil was eradicated because one heart at a time, more and more folks were becoming followers of King Jesus. And listen, King Jesus changes things. 
over in Matthew 5, Jesus speaks of his followers being salt, right? You are the salt of the earth. And we know that salt has a preserving uh, aspect to it. If you, if you put salt on meat and cure meat with salt, it, it preserves the meat. But listen to me. For salt to preserve, it has to permeate. And if we're going to be salt in our nation, if we're going to slow down the decay as the church, we've got to permeate our culture. One heart at a time. Standing on the edges of our society saying, that's bad, that's wrong, shouldn't do that. That's not going to be, that's not going to get the job done. We've got to permeate one heart at a time. That's how you change a society. So in this passage in Colossians, we see the, the, the evil institution of slavery, but we see the principles given that would eventually destroy. Isn't that awesome? It's awesome how Jesus changes the society. But I want to give you a second thought here, and we'll be through. Not only does Jesus transform a society one heart at a time, but Jesus transforms our work. A large part of any society is the workforce, Right? That's a large part of what constitutes a culture, a society. So if we really want to impact our society, if we want Jesus to impact our society through us, some of that's got to happen in the workplace. Right? Right? There are some principles in this passage that we can derive that help us understand what the workplace ought to look like for believers. This passage is specifically talking to slaves and slave owners, but some of those relationships in the first century look very much like employer-employee. One in authority, one under authority. So we can lift these principles and apply them to the authority we live under or the, or the authority we wield as employers. For example, let me give you some principles for employees. Number one, do what is expected of you. Look what it says in verse 22 of Colossians 3. Bond servants... Obey in everything, in everything. Do what you're called to do. Do what you're expected to do. Do your job. As a believer in Christ, do what God has called you uh, to do by obeying your instructions, by, by doing what you are expected to do. Now, I believe that Christian employees should be characterized as doing what's expected for them when they are at work. Now, I was a, a, a student pastor for a while, and even as a pastor, as I talk to young people that are getting jobs, that are entering the workforce, you know, maybe their first job. If I have a chance to talk to them, I always tell them this. If you will show up to work on time and do your job while you're there, you'll move up in the organization. I don't care what organization it is. You'll move up because no one else is doing it. Businesses are having a really hard time finding folks that show up on time and do their job while they're there. So I said, if you just show up and do your job, I'm telling you, you'll move, they'll make you a manager, they'll move you up. By those two simple things. Do what is expected of you. Christ followers should do what is expected of them on the job. Amen? Secondly, we ought to work with integrity. Look what it says in verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service. In other words, you don't just work when people are watching you as people pleasers. You're not just working to, to please people. You're working because it's the right thing to do. You, you have integrity. Look what he says. 
with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That word sincerity means singleness of heart. It means an undivided heart. So you're doing your job with, with a, a wholeheartedness. Your heart's not divided up among other things. You're doing your job with integrity. And then look, look at the next verse. Whatever you do, work heartily. Now that word, heartily there, is literally work from your soul. We talked to our souls this morning, didn't we? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Remember that song we just sang? We talked to our souls. In other words, from the deepest part of who I am, I want to bless God's name. What he's saying here is when you do your job from the deepest part of who you are, do your job with integrity. Do it with your soul. Put your soul into it. That's, it. That's a, a, an awesome perspective that can change your workplace. Work with integrity. And then third, work for the greater reward. Look what it says in verse 23. Whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord, not for men. Realize you're ultimately serving Jesus in your work. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So when you work, if you're doing it for Jesus, nothing you do for him goes unnoticed. And one day he'll reward you for your faithful work of integrity. He will. So whether you are being treated fairly or not by your employer, work with integrity and Jesus sees it. And let God take care of the injustice. Look what it says in the next verse. Verse 25. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There's no partiality. So let God worry about all that. But you do your job with integrity. And Jesus will take notice and Jesus will reward you. We ought to go to work. And of course we work for paychecks. And of course we work for accomplishment. And and of course we try to achieve things on our job. That's that's good and that's okay. But our ultimate goal in working should be to work for the greater reward that King Jesus will reward us for our integrity on the job. Right? That's what it says. I read a story this past week in Bob Record's book, Made to Count. He, He told the story about a construction site. True story. And it was hot, humid, and, and everyone was in a bad mood and ornery because of the heat and the humidity and the job. And there was a, a lone porta potty on the site for the construction workers to use. And it was filthy and it reeked. And that, in that heat, it just it smelled worse and worse and covered the job site. And everyone was kind of in a foul mood. Well, one day, they're out there on the site working, and all of a sudden they hear this loud music. And this car pulls up, and this guy jumps out with a big smile on his face. And he grabs this, this uh, uh, bag full of equipment, and he goes into the porta potty. And those construction workers start what they're doing and start watching. He said, he'll be out in just a second. He didn't come out. Matter of fact, he began to make a lot of noise and bamming and framing and doing something in there. After a while, that, 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 that smell that just reeked began to have a sort of a pleasant aroma that, that began to blow across the job site. That man was in there cleaning up, scrubbing and getting it clean and getting ready to go, singing all the time. He came out with a big smile on his face, and here's what he said. He said, the guy taking care of this for you wasn't doing a very good job. From here on out, I guarantee this will be the best it can possibly be because I'm here to serve you. With that, this man, porta potty cleaner, jumped in the car, turned on the loud music, smiled on his face, and began to drive off. One of the workers stopped him. And he said this. He said, 
how can you do that? More importantly, why do you do that? And listen to this man's answer. He said, oh, it's simple. You see, I work for the Lord. I do every task as though I were doing it for him. See you next week. With a smile, he drove off. And those workers were dumbfounded. That's what I'm talking about here. That's what the Word of God is saying. Whatever you find yourself doing, whether it be something menial like, like cleaning porta potty or something important and influential, whatever you're doing, do it for the glory of Christ. Do it for Him. And that will begin to transform your workplace. So what about employers? Those that have authority. Those that have people under them that they are, they are tasked with leading. Well, look what it says there in your notes. Principles for employers. Number one, treat employers, uh, treat employees fairly. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Again, revolutionary in the, in the first century Roman Empire. That a, that a slave owner was to treat his slaves with justice and fairness. And if we live that principle and apply it to employers, we are called to treat employees fairly. So wait, how do I know if I'm in charge of others? How do I know if I'm treating them fairly? Let me, let me give you a very simple way to know if you're treating others fairly. Ask yourself this question. Am I treating my employees the way I would want to be treated? Golden rule, right? Isn't that simple? Am I treating my employees the way I would want to be treated? And if the answer to that question is yes, then you're treating them fairly. If not, then you need to change some things. And remember, if you're an employer, remember you're accountable to God. Look what it says in chapter 4, verse 1. Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Understand that, yes, you have some authority over others, but you are under authority. King Jesus is your Lord, and you're to live in a way that honors Him, even in your being an employer. Principles for employers. Now, here's what I want you to walk away with. Kind of a, a bottom line principle. When Christians take their faith to the workplace, Christianity infiltrates society. When Christians take their faith to the workplace, by the way they live, by the way they treat people, by the way they talk, by their unashamed witness, by the joy that they convey, as they live their faith in the workplace, workplaces begin to change. And listen, the workforce is a major part of society. So as workplaces change, what else changes? Society begins to change. You see how that works? I think that, that we are prone to misunderstanding our role as believers in Christ. So we know that we have missionaries, right, that we send out, and we send them to somewhere in the world, and they're to go and lead people to faith in Christ. But what if, listen to me, what if we all consider ourselves missionaries and our workplace as the mission field? And we take our faith with us to work, not being obnoxious, but just being joyful in Jesus and living with integrity because that's what Jesus has called you to do. And we begin to infiltrate our workplaces with the gospel. It'll change your job. 
It'll change your company. It'll change your situation. Because when Jesus infiltrates a place, things change. Amen? And so, this passage is so powerful because it gives us a template to help us to understand how Jesus changes society. You say, wait, I don't like the way things are going in our nation. Well, I don't either. Are we going to just sit around and be mad about it? Or are we going to say, Lord Jesus, we want to be instruments in your hands. Use us to change people's lives one heart at a time. Use us to to live out our faith in the workplace for the glory of your great name. And if we will have that mindset, Jesus will change our culture.